Hey, uh, thrilled that you're here tonight, and it's awesome to worship together. I, I love the theme of that song. It's just, I want to know you deeper, and uh, that's the heart of a disciple, is to, uh, to want to know and walk with Jesus in deeper and more profound and uh, rich way, and uh, we pray that for you often, that you would have that longing in your heart to do that, and you may be here, and maybe you're kind of still on your spiritual journey, and and our heart and prayer for you would be that, that somewhere along the line here, Jesus would just become more and more real uh, for you, and that as you investigate him, he would meet you in those moments. And so we started this series a couple weeks ago on friending and uh, looking at some ingredients that how do you have healthy, godly, good friendships? Because uh, how many of you have friends? How many of you want to have friends? So, like, well, friendship is a part of every stage of life, no matter what age bracket you may fit in, and we want to have good, healthy uh, friendships. And so we said, we want. what does the scripture have to say about developing those? And so we kind of went to work on a few things, but just some statistics, if you will, about friendships and the power and impact of them. So the Mayo Clinic, we've all heard of them, uh, had done a lot of research on friendships, and it says this, that they have a major impact on your health and your well-being, that they increase your sense of belonging and purpose. They boost your happiness and reduce your stress. They improve your self-confidence and self-worth. They help you cope with the traumas and the difficulties and challenges that come your way in life. They actually reduce risk of some of the health issues that you might have. It's important that we have friendships. They actually have an impact in real life upon our life. Uh, Mr. Vivek Murthy, who served as a U.S. Surgeon General from 2014 to 2018, said this, that the greatest threat to the American health is not obesity, it's not cancer, it's not smoking, it's isolation. As he advocated for the need for healthy friendship and connection with people, that we may be the most virtually connected generation ever, but we also are in danger of becoming relationally and emotionally isolated is what he advocated, this call to say friendships matter. Now, the Bible never gives us a full, like, friendship definition, so to speak. 73 times in the Old Testament, it talks about the word friend. 37 times in the New Testament, it talks about that. And it kind of gives descriptions of what good friends are and what poor friends are and what kind of friendships you don't want, especially in Proverbs. It kind of unpacks this idea of Here's a lot of references to nearly all the ones that are cautioning against some kind of dubious friendship, but yet advocating, here's the virtues of what a true friend is like. And so as we launched into the series, we said we wanted to use kind of the teaching team. Uh, and so Elisa taught last week, Kimberly's teaching next week, and we're just uh, as a whole team kind of looking at this friendship, how do you understand what ingredients we put in? So just to recap, we, we, the very first week we brought out bowling shoes, remember? And we talked about this, the, the virtue of empathy and compassion. Uh, we use a phrase in our culture to walk in someone else's shoes, which you do every time you go bowling. You walk in someone else's shoe, like a thousand people's shoes uh, that have worn that before you. Good luck. But, it's just, um, but this idea that to, to live as a person with empathy and compassion, it moves us to actually begin to feel with people. And that we are hardwired by our creator to feel with others, to feel with people. Jesus modeled that so well. God feels with us, and we are then freed to feel with others. Compassion and empathy are some of the basic building blocks of healthy, godly, good friendships. Must have that. Empathy and compassion are like the relational glue 
that we need to have friendships and relationships work well. Last week, Elisa kind of unpacked this idea that friendship is a full-time pursuit. Real friends are always on. They're always there walking through the thick and thin of life. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. At all times. That friends are those rare people who come find you in the dark places and lead you back to the light. That you are never walking through life alone when you have a friend. And we are blessed to have those friends, the ability to nurture those kind of friendships. And we are really blessed that Jesus is that kind of friend for us who stands with us and advocates for us and that we are called to be a friend who is always there for others. And so today, I want us to look at another trait, another ingredient, if you will, that helps build healthy, godly, good friendships. And it's this ingredient, this trait uh, of humility. Now, humility is a hard word to kind of get your mind around to understand fully and grasp what exactly it is and what it isn't. Uh, but let me kind of start with this and frame it in a way that, that might help your mind kind of get around it. So uh, how many of you drove here? Okay. Anyone walk here? A couple, maybe a couple people. So uh, if you drove here, you saw a bunch of street signs on the way. How many of you saw a stop sign? Okay. Now here's what I want you to do. Turn to your neighbor right next to you. You got 15 seconds to brainstorm as many street signs as you can, not, not, like, not, not like street, like road signs, but like just the actual signs, like stop signs, one example. Okay, 15 seconds, what other signs can you think of? Go, 15 seconds, go. What other signs can you think of? All right, 15 seconds, talking, 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 done. How many of you encountered this sign or you've seen this sign before, right? I will advocate to you, this is the least understood sign out there. <laughs> How many of you, when you pull up to a yield sign, gun it? And then occasionally you look to your left just to see if anyone's there, right? Uh, how many of you almost treat this like a stop sign? Okay, it's not a stop sign. Okay, it's a yield sign. And there's a difference with that. This is one of the most understood or misunderstood signs out there. But I think it actually helps us get a glimpse of what the Bible is trying to teach about humility. So I want you to kind of keep that in mind, and I'll leave it here so it's always in your mind. So this idea of humility is important for us to understand. And one of the greatest passages you see in scriptures to, to help unpack that is in Philippians chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there, uh, or you can open up sermon notes on the app and follow along right with us in there. But in Philippians chapter two, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, and he's saying and teaching them and challenging them with some things to understand, some things to bring unity and harmony within the church. And then he gets really specific about what actually helps drive that. Here's what he says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any encouragement from Christ himself, is what he's saying, if you have any comfort from his love for you, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love one to another, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in 
humility. If you have a pen, circle that. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking out for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This first part of what he's unpacking is, look, you've got to have this, this unity of heart and mission that you're to be about. When Paul says, if you have that, really you can replace that word with since you have that. Since you have encouragement with Christ, since your hearts have been secured and comforted by his love, since you have sensed the presence of the Spirit prompting you, since God has given you tenderness and compassionate hearts that move you toward kindness one to another, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. My friends, the beauty of a healthy church is that its members live in loving harmony with each other. That's what Jesus prayed in John 17, right before he was crucified. Father, make them one, unified together. Make them in oneness. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said. By the way you what? Love one another. By the way that gets worked out, people will notice that you're followers of me. But how exactly does that happen? What causes that harmony to occur? I would say to you one word. Yield. Humility is how that works out. That's actually how that begins to work out in our friendships, in our relationships. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, Paul's challenging us to change our mindset. The unity that Paul is appealing to is, look, you've got to be like-minded. That doesn't mean we agree on everything. It doesn't mean we're the same. It just means that we're fixed on God's mind and wanting to have his, his mind guide our thoughts. Being like-minded doesn't mean we agree on everything or that we always vote for the same people. It doesn't mean that we have the same loyalties to everything else except we are loyal to the law of love and to Jesus. That the same grounding is the basis for all of us. That when we disagree, we love each other enough to assume the best of one another that we're able to respect diverging points of view in life and in theology, that we're able to have room to say, I'm with you, even though I personally may disagree. But we can be here together when it's not a foundational thing. And so we can live in this space. It includes having the same love, that we're united in heart, having the same love for God and enjoying his love for us and to express that to other people. That includes that we have the same spirit and purpose, that we are united in purpose and the mission and the focus of God's desires. That kind of unity does not mean uniformity, meaning that we're not all meant to be the same and identical or alike in every way, that we are a diverse people. God created us to be different and yet to be unified. So our goal is not to have our goal is to have unity in the midst of our diversity. In a church, we have a freedom to be unique, but we do not have the freedom to be divided. And so we're called to this unity. And how do you work that out? You gotta yield. You gotta have humility as a part of how you live and how you navigate relationships and connections one to another, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
Rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul is saying that's how it actually gets worked out in friendships and in relationships. To summarize the real cause of division and strife among people or among friends, you could boil it down to one word, selfishness. Selfishness becomes the root problem. The cause of selfishness is pride. For most of us to bring ourself under control and to monitor that and to not always be just about me, that is a struggle of a lifetime, isn't it? The old uh, Tonight Show host, Jack Parr, classic line was this, looking back, my life seems like one long obstacle course with me as the chief obstacle. Paul declared that we're not, in order to get ourself in right relationship with others, we have got to learn to keep ourself in check. We've got to suggest that maybe this idea of keeping self in check is that we have to learn to yield and to have humility. That's what Paul is getting at. The word describes a person who is not only for his own self-interest, by definition, the Christian should never be just about themselves. They should have a greater concern than just oneself. So Paul's suggesting that in order to keep yourself in check, you have got to practice humility. We live in a culture that does anything but that. See, humility is a hard thing for most of us to understand and even to practice and to live this out because our world has a current to it. And the current is simply not humility. The current is make it all about you. It's all about you. Pursue stuff for you. Don't worry about other people. Occasionally you can throw a couple bucks at their way, but really be focused on you. And that's the current of our culture. In other words, selfishness. It's an ambition. It makes ourself the one of self-importance. It's looking out for my own interest first that leads to most of the problems that happen in relationships and friendships and groups, right? That when that is left unchecked and not countered by something else that's more godly, then things go awry. Maybe you could say it like this, humility is the remedy to selfishness. Humility is the remedy to selfishness. It's what we must practice. We must learn to yield to other people. Now listen, this is where biblical teaching on humility can go sideways because some people can interpret that to, well, then I should never get my way. I should never have any of my own interests or my own wants or my own desires. That is not a biblical teaching of humility. It's not that you don't have desires or dreams or wants or interests. It's that it's not only about your interests and your dreams and your desires. It's not limiting yourself to be focused solely on that. Maybe C.S. Lewis says it best when he says it this way. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's actually just thinking of yourself less. It's not saying that I'm, I'm dirt and I'm unworthy and I don't have any importance and therefore I'm just going to let you do whatever you want. It's not becoming a person who lets people walk all over you. That's not humility. That's dumb. Humility is saying, look, I have interests and I have wants and I have desires, but you do also. 
and therefore I'm going to learn to yield. And my hope is that you are also learning to yield. Healthy marriages, when you think of it this way, are not like a contract. When I go through pre-marriage counseling with people, we always talk about this, that I have a, a phone contract with Sprint. They're not awesome, okay? But they're who I have. And if they only fulfilled maybe 70% of my phone calls, we'd have an issue, right? Because I'm paying an X number of dollars to fulfill their end of the contract. And if they don't live up to that, then I would go and say, I would stop. I'm going to take my money somewhere else. I'm going to go to T-Mobile. Actually, don't go there. Uh, but this, <coughs> I'm joking if you work for T-Mobile. Um, but you would figure this out. But see, marriage ultimately is a covenant. It's where two people enter into a covenant agreement that says, look, I'm 100% in your corner. I am for you no matter what. Whether you reciprocate that or not. But my hope is, and my prayer is, that when you live that way and I live that way, we both win and we both benefit. It's not I do this much and you do this much and we'll meet in the middle. No, no, no. This is about yielding. It's about serving the people around us. It's about looking not only to my own interests, but to their interest as well. Maybe you could say it like this. Mutual humility is a necessity for friendships to be healthy. That we both have this sense of humility of yielding to us. Harvard uh, philosopher Josiah Royce wrote a book in 1908. I wasn't around then. But philosophy of loyalty, here's what he begins to talk about, in which he sought to answer the question, why are human beings in need of meaning beyond themselves? His answer was that human beings could not live without dedication to a cause greater than themselves and their own happiness. He said it this way. We need a devotion to something more than ourselves for our lives to be endurable. Without it, we only have, we only have our desires to guide us and they are fleeting and they are fickle, insatiable. You've got to live for something bigger. We have been created and wired from the very beginning for something bigger than just ourselves. And as we seek to serve others, to honor others, to give to others, we are actually helping ourselves grow in meaning and purpose in life. Humility fosters that reality. Learning to yield. Where I don't stop it's not nothing's about me, but it's also about you. And I don't try to run you over. I'm yielding. I'm learning how to have this dance where your needs matter as much as mine. And you see it the same way. And we both benefit. It's we is greater than me. When it's not all about you and it's not all about me, then it's about the we and each person benefits. And each person is better off. Isn't that kind of what Paul's getting at? That we is the approach we need as followers of Jesus, modeling our lives after his. We are connected one to another, and we approach things not as a quest for what's in this for me, but how can I help we? How can I help us? But see, we live in a worldview, in a culture that promotes and emphasizes the exact opposite of that. It does it so often. Our culture pushes you and I to make things all about me so much and so often in such deeply entrenched ways. We must fight against the current 
Because if you don't intentionally practice this, guess what? You just get swept away in the current of our culture. And it becomes all about you. That's why you have to learn humility, in essence, is learning to swim upstream from the current of the culture around us. That's why yielding is so vital to friendships and to relationships, to work well, to become more like Jesus. We must become more unlike the world. We have to push back a little bit, and the great challenge is to grow and foster humility. It is not easy. So often we just want to drift because it takes so much work and so much practice and so much effort and energy to yield. To think about someone else's needs as a dad. When I have desires and interests and my kids come and say, I want to do this, and I go, no, in my mind, not out loud, right away. But I have to do a heart check then of like, okay, is this worth just it being about me? Or can I yield a little bit in this? Each situation's different, and I'm not saying you never get, but if you don't ever practice this, then you're just swept away in the current and the culture of our day. Uh, maybe I can illustrate it a little bit this way. With uh, Anyone ever played a balloon stomp before? It's when you tie a balloon around your ankle and there's a room full of people with balloons tied around their ankles, and then people explain the rules of the game that your job is to protect your balloon and to stomp out all the other balloons of the people in the room. Anyone ever played this before? Okay, a few of you. So the teacher explains this rule. There's a couple fourth grade classes that are gonna play and do this experiment, and so the one fourth grade class gets told this, okay, you protect your balloon, you're gonna stomp out everyone else's, go! And chaos ensues for the next few minutes, right? As people are running around trying to stomp on balloons and yet protect their balloon. There's people that are hiding against the wall and yet people are tagging up and going after them until finally there's one balloon left. And it's on the one that the class probably would have picked ahead of time of who has it. He's the bully in the classroom, the one that intimidates, the one who's aggressive. He's the one that survived. There's another fourth grade class filled with special needs kids. And the teacher does the same game, explains it, but I, I think things get lost in translation because when she blows the whistle to go, everyone just starts working together to stomp out balloons. Johnny bends down and holds his balloon while Susie stomps on it and then returns the favor as she holds her balloon and he stomps on theirs and everyone's working together and finally there's no balloons left around any ankle and the class just raises a cheer. Yeah, we did it! Same game. Two totally different results. Why? two totally different interpretations of the game. One is, it's all about me. I've got to protect me. I've got to take care of me, and I've got to stomp out you. It's about my interest and my needs, my desires. I need to win. The other one is, man, we get to do this. And okay, let's work together. And, and we get to accomplish this. We took them all out, and we all win. Maybe that story begins to emphasize 
what Paul's kind of driving at here. In order to be a person who lives with humility, you have to practice this. You have to learn to yield. And that takes practice on a Monday in your family and on a Tuesday afternoon at your workplace and on Thursday evening out with friends and a Friday night at the game that you're at with the people on your team. It's not easy. It's a challenge. But when it's not all about me, and it's about the we, and we begin to yield our hearts together, actually great things can begin to happen, and the culture can begin to change. That it's imperative for us to have a heart of humility within us as we seek to build healthy, godly, and good friendships. Humility is kind of like, anyone ever used WD-40 before? Humility is like that. It's what lubricates and greases relationships and friendships to work and to function well when I learn to yield, and it's not all about me. And it's okay for your interests and your needs and your desires to take center stage this time. And maybe you're going to reciprocate that later, and it's working together in that. And that maybe if, if your way can't fully work and my way can't fully work, maybe there's a third way that we can make this work together because we're both practicing this mutual humility to yield this out in real relationships. I put the bottom line as this. There is harmony within friendships when there is humility within each heart. There's harmony within our friendships when there's humility within each heart. This mutual humility that says, I want the best for you and you want the best for me. And so let's work toward that. See, Philippians, I think Paul has this incredibly powerful challenge. You're to be unified. Though you're diverse, you're to have unity above everything. You're to have this harmony in the way that you work and the way that you live. And that only happens when you practice yielding your will to others. And they do it to you, and you begin to live this out and practice a little bit more. But see, then he goes on to this challenge. He says, look, that's the challenge, that's the description, that's how this begins to work out. But let me show you the best example of this. And here's what he says next. Verse 5 through 11, I think, is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament. The early church would sing this as a hymn because it speaks about him, Jesus, the ultimate example of someone who learned, someone who said, I'm going to yield what I have to benefit others. And here's what it says. In your relationships, verse 5, with one another, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let's just stop right there. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus did. What? Paul could have dropped the mic right there. How do you do that? Yielding. It's a challenge. It's not easy. It's practice over and over. And then he goes on to describe this example of how Jesus did this. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, 
being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came in a rescue mission for you and for me. He yielded. He didn't sit in heaven and say, they'll figure it out, or you guys try to figure it out, or I'll send him a letter and they can try to get here. He knew we'd never get there. And so in yielding of his own heart to say, I will go make a way, I will pursue, I will give up in order to go get And as he does that, even death on a cross, it is a reminder to us that humility and yielding, they are a big deal to God. They're a big deal, friends. God raises up the humble, he says. But the proud, he brings down. Humility is something we must practice. It is a challenge, it is not easy. But Jesus left the comforts of heaven to come search us out and offered his life in atoning sacrifice on our behalf that we could have life with God through faith in him so that we could have access to friendship and relationship with God through faith in Jesus. That we could have an eternal hope in this side of heaven and on into heaven forever. And Paul saying, Jesus did this You be like him. You're to have the same mindset as Jesus did. So how does this work out? I don't know. Each one of your situations is going to be different. Each one of mine is also. It's not that you never get your desires or your interests or your wants. It's that you seek to be a person who lives in humility that says, I'm willing to yield. And to have good, healthy, godly friendships, it's mutual humility that makes that happen as you live that out. And so I'd like to close just rereading through this example of Jesus as the worship team comes. And we're going to take communion here in a moment. Uh, if you're new here, we've got communion stations down front and in the back here, gluten-free uh, crackers are down here. And just give you space to reflect on this challenge from Paul and this example of Jesus. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider the interests and needs of others above yourself. And then he says these words about the example of Jesus in your relationships one to another. You're to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every single name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, this is a challenge in our culture to yield our will to the interests and needs of others. It's not an easy thing. To actually be a person who practices as a disciple and a follower of Jesus, to live out humility is a tall task. It's a challenge you give us. Jesus, it's the challenge you lived out. It's the model that you gave. It's how you lived. And when you said to your followers, I want you to be one. I want you to be unified. I want you to be humble of heart. That's how this is going to work. People will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another, that you yield to one another to seek each other's best. Then people will know. God, this benefits us greatly when it's practiced in our friendships. And it's life-changing to a world that desperately needs to see this example lived out more and more. So Father, in a simple prayer, I pray that you'd give us a remembrance of the example of Jesus that in his life and his death and his resurrection that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. That as we take that cracker and that juice tonight, we are re-upping to say, God, we want the same mindset that Jesus has, to be the one that filters, shapes how we live. So would you challenge us this week how to yield? Would you help us to practice? And would you use our example to bless our friendships? And would you use our friendships to bless the world around us, that people might see you be captivated by you. So in these next few moments, as we contemplate, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we sing, would you stir our hearts afresh and anew?